0: Welcome to Lazarus Theatre Company's new podcast, Spotlight On, where we turn the spotlight on to reveal the people behind the scenes, those who make Lazarus work, the creatives, the artists, the process, the creation.
1: Hello, I'm Gavin Harrington-Odidra,
0: producer of Lazarus Theatre Company. Hello. Hello. And I'm Ricky Dukes, Artistic Director of Lazarus Theatre Company. Isn't it funny that after all these years, I still have to I still have to read what my title is? <laughs> anyway, hello. I'm,
1: I'm just going to say that I wasn't reading mine. Um, oh. uh, yeah, if you believe that.
0: Um, how are you? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Yes. Strange week, isn't it? We talked about this because we're recording this on the 16th of March, which, of course, we is are. the year anniversary since... Um, we were told not to go to the theatre. So it's a bit of a strange week. And um, we talked yesterday, didn't we, when we were recording uh, our episode with uh, Stuart Glover, lighting designer. It all felt a bit weird. Um, Mm. And it's really interesting to see theatre's responses on social media today, you know, and mail-outs. It's really interesting to see, I think, theatres that are kind of marking the moment, acknowledging what's happened, and then start to look to the future. Mm -hmm. And some that haven't and they just going let's be buoyant to be positive and it's really kind of interesting and I'd love to sort of know more about that thinking because I, th- I do believe it's important that we acknowledge what's happened in order to then move on and also I don't know in a, in a way to feel like we can't let it happen again um, mm. and I'm not talking about the pandemic necessarily there but let's try not to that to happen mm-hmm. again but, but the response to culture and arts and theatre um, you know how do we as an industry make the case that the arts are are vital and important mm. so we don't have to plead for that anymore that it is something that people acknowledge and anyway I wrote a very long tweet about it if anyone's interested uh <laughs> multi-thread but uh this morning um but yeah it just it just feels um important to sort of mark it just, to, just mm. to say this is what's happened anyway that's that's uh, talking to people over the last 12 months it's felt like there's a sense of loss or a sense of grief, but we're not quite sure what we've lost or are grieving for. So I think there's something, again, it might just be for my own head, but something about marking it. And then yeah. now we can go, right, how do we make the arts and culture? I don't know. How do we campaign for it? How do we let people know that it filters to every part of their life? It isn't just one sort of type of theatre or one type of experience. Um, we've got to get yeah. better at banging our own drum, maybe.
1: Absolutely. And how I are think- you? I'm okay. Um, just to go on from that you said yesterday that it's a way of life. it's not just it's not just a job. it is a it is a way of life. but also we have and we've all trained. we've all got you know years of experience doing this. this has been what we've been doing for you know 10 15 years. and to have, to feel like that's not been acknowledged is is quite difficult, i think. i mean I, I think that's what what makes it a little bit more, difficult a year on knowing that the government really have not acknowledged the work that we do and the the worth of the work that we do um but yeah year on now now move forward right now now look forward and look to the light i guess and speaking of light um I just wanted to say that it was really nice to while we were playing the while we were playing the the intro, Bob, uh, composed by Bobby Locke from chalk Circle. The both of you were uh, doing some great dancing. Um, it's a very light uh, lovely piece of music that you kind of almost have to dance to, so that was nice to see.
0: Great is an interesting adjective for that
2: dance, but
1: there we go, I'll take that. Yeah, take it, take it. Um, This week we're talking to actor, stage combat specialist, fight director, and Lazarus associate Alice Emery. Alice trained at the Stella Mann College of Performing Arts and Drama Centre London, the latter inspiring her deep love of early modern playwrights. She received further training as an instructor for the, for the Academy of Performance Combat and runs the sword fighting demonstrations at Shakespeare's Globe exhibitions. Alice first worked with Lazarus in 2014 and 15 in Shakespeare's Henry V at the Union Theatre. Then went on to work on our devised production of Euripides' The Bacchae at the Blue Elephant Theatre, John Ford's Tis Pity She's a Whore at the Tristan Bates Theatre, and rehearsed reading of John Gay's seldom-seen sequel to the beggars' opera Polly, the sequel, all in 2016. Golly. And most recently played Lady Macbeth in our 2020 production of Macbeth just before the theatre shut down. Alice, thank you for joining us and welcome to Spotlight On.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, it's lovely, lovely to see you. Um, how are you?
3: I'm well. I'm very well. Good. Is that uh, I hadn't actually marked the date as as a year since the theatre's closed. Quite sad.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, I think it is. Yeah. Quite sad. Um, how how has your year been since since the sixteenth of March, twenty twenty?
3: Um. All right. I mean, I was just reflecting that the day it happened. The the it was my last day at the Globe and we all gathered on stage. Uh, they called the the crew and everyone and the, the creatives were all there. And uh, I had to watch Michelle Terry cry. Mm. It, was all, it was all rather poignant. And, and there was a, a wonderful promise of they will return and then we will return. And there was just sort of a an edge to it. Like they weren't entirely sure they would. So I'm still hoping that they will be salvaged when it's such a huge institute like that. And they're, they're fearful for, for whether they can make it back and whether they'll get the help they need. Mm. Like the smaller companies seem like they don't have a chance.
1: It is hard, isn't it? A, a big company, you might think, has has the resources to to prop itself up or to keep itself going. But also a big organization like that has a lot of outgoings, has a yeah. lot of money that they need to spend, even when they're not doing work, even when they're shut down, Yeah, um, which makes it really hard, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I you know,
3: imagine the profit margins are razor thin.
2: Mm. Yeah, a place
3: like that, especially with everything they put into their productions, with all the original practices and all the the, the, the wonderfully unique costumes and props they've got going in there.
1: Mm. Not yeah. cheap. No, no. And there's so much research goes into it, doesn't there? They have a whole departments devoted to to the research of <laughs> of what stage blood should be used in, and, and all it's the rest. A wonderful place. <laughs> <laughs> um, you'll you'll be back. You'll be back. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, can you tell us a little bit about about what it is that you do at the globe?
3: Um, so I run the the stage combat demonstrations in the exhibition. So there's there's the theater bit, the education bit and the exhibition bit, which uh, was did house sort of a little mini museum. But as it was when I left, it was mostly combat demonstrations and costume demonstrations. So the costume demonstration is talking through the process of, it's not, they don't even call it a costume, they call it a dressing demonstration, because it's not about the costumes they wore, it's about the actual clothes, because that's what they had on stage. So that's what much what we did as well. It's not about what you would do for stage combat, but what would have actually been combat of the day, because that's what they would have done. It wouldn't have been like us nowadays, like, oh, we're using swords. I know nothing about swords, and I've never picked one up before. Shakespeare's day, they all knew quite a lot about swords and they would have seen them. And as actors, they would have trained as duelists and and uh, learned martial techniques from, from boyhood. And so it was, a, it was a much more simple and yet complicated process they went through because they would have had real swords and and real technique and uh, real masters in the audience as well. So they would have really had to know what they were doing. So that's what we show. We talk about the actual technique of the day, the actual masters of the day, and they use the actual weapons of the day. Well, not actual antiques, but made in the same way, steel swords blunted down, uh, which are very fun to play with, I've got to say.
1: <laughs> uh, getting out a lot of stress, I imagine. <laughs> and- yeah,
3: Yeah, very relaxing.
1: Who who makes who makes all the um, equipment?
3: So all our equipment was made by a man called Philip Stafford, who's just, he was my mentor, taught me how to fight, taught me how to teach, and uh, taught me about these wonderful weapons. And he made them all himself by hand. Uh, would often go to great lengths sourcing exactly the right kind of steel. They usually came in from Scotland, but then he lost that supplier, so he was looking over in Ireland and even going, you know, far further flung parts of Europe. Just so he could get the exact right steel to create the exact sword that he wanted and they're all based on actual swords that exist in the tower of london in the royal armories in leeds uh that he's been to and held and felt the balance of and tried to recreate them as accurately as possible and they're wonderful to use just using those swords teaches you something about swordplay and how to stand and how you would move um and you so often see it on uh on the bigger productions, on the films and things that you know they're using something carbon fiber and light because they've got this hefting great six foot long sword that they're swinging with one hand, one in each hand. you just no, not how it works, not how physics works, not how swords work. Isn't that so just showing real heft of it?
1: Isn't that ju- isn't that just showing how strong they are? That really strong yeah.
3: warriors. Yeah, so strong <laughs> they can defy physics.
1: Uh okay, yeah. And the world <laughs> of the levers. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Um, well, you know, suspension of disbelief and all, right? Yeah. Well, it's so cool. It's really yes. cool.
2: <laughs> Rule of cool.
1: Yeah. So, Alice, how have you how have you been staying creative since since March last year or since Macbeth?
3: Um, I think we've all had to stay a bit creative, haven't we? Mm. <laughs> Trying to get through it. But I've been, I'm very fortunate that, you know, the it was like, it was a week two weeks after Macbeth ended. Yeah, two so, weeks. They yeah. just closed two weeks. Sad. Um, just just sneaked it in there, but I had at that time the the twins, my babies, were only ten months old, so having them for the past year and for longer, I would hope has kept me very creative
2: because yeah. having
3: to find ways without being able to take them to soft plays and playgrounds and nurseries I'm, I'm i consider them very fortunate that they have each other to uh to entertain each other so they're not losing too much socially but um the the boredom that can set in we're constantly redesigning the sitting room we're constantly figuring out how to make forts constantly figuring out you know different ways to play and draw and learn numbers and and so you know we only have a finite number of books if we could keep buying them (laughs) that would be great so we have to keep finding different ways to read the same books which sounds weird but it works so it's a it's a blessing intermittently, a <laughs> blessing that they're around. And other times, like, oh, please just go to sleep. But yeah, that's that's kept me very creative. On the actual specific theater side, I'm very fortunate that my fight crew, there's eight of us, um, we have weekly Zoom meetings because they're all Zoom meetings now. And I like go a couple of months in, someone mentioned that they were gonna use the time to sort of catch up on all their Shakespeare, learn, like they hadn't even read all the plays and wanted to know more about it since they worked at the Globe. And uh, someone suggested, not me, probably Nat, because Natalie Winter has all my best ideas. Um, she uh, suggested that we have a, a weekly read of Shakespeare plays, and so we're working our way through them. Usually it takes us a couple of sessions. We're about three sessions into Troilus and Cressida right now. Uh, it's a bit of a slog. That one.
2: It's, it's <laughs> wonderful
3: how uh, it's wonderful how Shakespeare has separated, you know, the, the fun-loving Trojans and the incredibly intelligent, long-winded Greeks, but my God, it's like an entire camp of Polonius's, they do go on. But it's every time Ulysses opens his mouth, it's like, we'll take a break after this, I think. But that, that's that been wonderful.
1: That's that's great. So um, just going back on something you said before that um, it just dawned on me, you had two, two 10-month-old twins when you were doing Macbeth. You were playing Lady Macbeth yeah. and you had two 10-month-old twins at
3: home. How did, How did that work? Yeah. Uh, my husband was very helpful. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, I could give you the actual logistics, but it was waking up very, very early, making sure they had, uh, food for the day, giving them lots of cuddles and kisses, getting the trainers down, working all day, going home, being with the babies all night, cause they, uh, they were not sleeping great. So uh, there was a lot, a lot of sleeping on the nursery floor. We also had to uh, set up a camp in the living room, again, refurbishing the living room, just putting blankets and cushions everywhere so we could all just pile in there together so we wouldn't have to go far if they fussed. Um, and yeah, my husband was, was indisp- indispensable, yeah. Very, very helpful, very good uh, in taking over a lot of the work there. And then as soon as we were in production, it was day with the kids, night on the stage
1: lovely um and good time steve, steve is great steve is great i remember steve yeah. uh, bringing the twins all the way from your your home to to the, the theatre so that we could between, between a matinee and an evening show i think um, yeah, yeah the so last we,
3: one
1: yeah um they were
3: I, a bit grumpy they'd had a bit of a day so far well it's a long they'd journey got all isn't it they
1: <laughs> grumpy <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was lovely but, seeing yeah. them though that was the first time that we'd first and only time i guess we'd we'd got to got to meet them um, yeah, what are their names?
3: Uh, Albert and Margaret, so Albie and Magpie. <laughs> little magpie.
1: Lovely. Um, and and yeah. your name, um, your name's Alice, we've introduced you as Alice, but that's not how we met yep. you. Um, no. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, well, um, when I was in dance school, my actual name was unavailable uh, on equity spot. Yeah, equity. Yeah, um, but I couldn't I couldn't register my name. Someone already had it, uh, which was Alice Seeley at the time. And nobody had told me that it's best to change your second name to avoid confusion. So I decided to instead take my dad's initials RJ because I thought it sounded cool and become RJ Seeley. And that became my professional name from the point that I started at Drama Center. Um, and so everything was in that name. When I started working professionally, I was RJ, uh, nicknamed Reggie. If you, if my Twitter is at Reggie Seeley to this day. Uh, and and so I just sort of stuck with that for however long, but then when I was coming to get my qualifications as a combat instructor, as far as, you know, applying for insurances and getting uh, the, the what is the the acronym for the the you don't have a criminal record and you can work at a school
1: CRB check
3: CRB check yep that it was it was all in my real name so rather than to avoid confusion I I, Alice Emery was available so I I thought I'll have that one I'll have it's a good name I like my name now that I'm married uh so I thought it would be easier just to switch back to that professionally so I did that about two years ago I think uh, when I got qualified
1: which is which is why some of your credits on on our archive is R.J. Seeley and, RJ and, Seeley, now, yeah. and now for Lady Macbeth you were you were Alice Emery. But so so really you've had four names then if if you yeah, tell Reggie, yeah.
3: yeah Reggie, R.J. Alice Seeley and Alice Emery. Yeah. Interesting side note: my husband Stephen Emery uh managed to get his name despite the fact that the there was another Stephen Emery who wanted it but there was already a Stephen Emery so there was the first Stephen Emery the second one called himself Stephen Moyer instead and went on to find uh Anna Paquin and oh, have nice. a very happy life together yes. well done him he's a vampire <laughs> but he uh he never got to be Stephen Emery it freed up in time for Steve to have his, his to keep his name so it's funny how that stuff works <laughs> that you have to change the name. It all comes around eventually. However. You just
1: got to be patient. Yeah. You yeah. um, got his, I didn't get mine. Well, you did get it now. You got it now. Mm-hmm. Um, so Alice, tell us how you became an actor.
3: Um. Ooh. I was just always fascinated with it from, from a young age. I loved the, the I loved performing. I, you know, I was a stagecoach kid. I went to dance school, I wanted to be a ballerina for a really long time, but then I got really, really tall with big boobs. And I was like, yeah, that's not gonna work out. So yeah, I, I always liked performing. I loved musicals with my first love. I really wanted to do musicals. That's why I went to a, a dance college. And it was actually in, uh, in dance college that I, I, I began to feel unchallenged by it, I, I, I found myself preferring the, you know, two classes a week we got to do acting or one class a week that we got to do singing, I found that more uh, engaging. It was all challenging, it was all difficult because it's trying to, you know, beat you to a professional level in three years and that's quite a lot to ask of anyone. But, but the, the want to push myself further existed more among acting and singing than it did among dance for whatever reason, maybe I'm just lazy. But then in my second year, I did a summer course at RADA. I did three weeks at RADA doing classics. And I'd also got the uh, BBC full set of Shakespeare plays. And so I've read every single sort or read along with the DVD abridged version wow. uh, so that I could get through them all and claim at a very young age that I'd read every Shakespeare play, kind of and and yeah i became obsessed that was when that so my path to be wanting to be an actor above all things was through shakespeare through love of shakespeare and then uh, going to rada for that summer because i'd always been in acting classes i'd always had a knack for it I'd, I'd always you know been able to sort of pick up on things very quickly and all sort of the stuff we were doing at Stella man was very similar to sort of a GCSE drama class because two classes a week, you're not gonna get that much further. I go to Radha and I find out, oh no, there's so much more. There's so much deeper. There's so much, much else in this. It's not just going on stage and sounding like you kind of know what you're talking about. There's there's layers here. There's, there's endless discovery to be had. I was like, ooh, I wanna do that. Uh so that's when I decided after uh Stella Man, I'd want to pursue some, some acting credentials and started applying to drama schools.
1: Right. And um so so it's the depth, it's the it's the layers, it's it, it is that is that what it is about Shakespeare? Um
3: Yeah. Yeah, I mean discovering that acting was was more than just uh convincing people that that you're someone else. Because there's the the thing of young actors saying, Oh, it's just lying. You can just lie convincingly and then learning no it's it's actually about telling the truth but just changing what the truth is changing your mindset changing your mentality changing your entire psychological makeup if you're going deep enough and uh, so looking at acting as a psychological exercise a psychological exploration of people and their motivations i think shakespeare expresses that really really well i think every character type, every mentality, every decision can be found within his 30-ish plays, 36, seven, depending who you're talking to. Um, And and I always found it so well expressed because there is no meta, there's no subtext. It's just, it's all laid out. If you wanna know what someone's thinking, they've got a monologue to tell you. And it's usually expressed beautifully, poetically, intelligently and clear so concisely. That's what I'd like, it's so concise. And yet with room to question and room to explore. So that's why I think it's it's so endlessly fascinating to so many people, myself included.
1: Do you, so, so does that mean you have a process when when approaching a Shakespeare play? If, if you're playing someone in a Shakespeare play and does that process um, change if you're doing uh, another early modern from a different writer or or a modern play?
3: Um, I think the first the first thing I go to, um, like one of, the, one of my favourite things about drama school was being given so many different methods to break in. It wasn't about this is the one method that always works, but no these are all the methods that you could use and this one might be your favourite, but if this one doesn't work you can try this one, that one, the other. So my favourite approach to most things is academic, like find what's in the text first. So one of the first things I'll do is find everything that my character says about themselves everything that another character says about my character and everything my character says about other people so finding that just evidence in the text whether it's early modern or modern like that's the first key to me because that will give me a basis of what this character is or what they think of themselves what other people think of them and how they respond to the people and personalities around them um the next thing within shakespeare is is looking at the meter i'm i'm very precise about the meter because we did a wonderful workshop on Ophelia, how she's very, very uh, rigid with her pentameter, with her rhythms, with her at the beginning because she's a proper court lady. So she would speak perfectly. And then if she begins to lose her mind, lines become feminine there's you know 11 12 13 syllables they the the beats begin to go off it's no longer structured perfectly and so you can find her madness in just the rhythm and the beat of the of the words and so that's that's what i will look at next i will count i will count the syllables because i'm just that person (laughs) i count them and uh and doing something like Lady M, it's there as well. Like she goes well off. she starts she's so perfect and so proper even even when she's calling upon the devil to to possess her. It's all almost completely perfect pentameter. uh, but then by the end, obviously she's she's prose. she doesn't she's not even bothering with verse anymore. Um so that is finding that journey through that rhythm I always find very fascinating. In and you can find it in most early moderns, but I think Shakespeare uses it the best. I think others are less want to stray from from the technical, from the perfect. They'll want to keep it within the rules, the Cambridge rules.
1: Do you think that's um, that's a sign of, of of Shakespeare's genius in that in that um, he's able to play with the form a little bit more, and and people are other other writers are a bit more rigid because they they need that backbone of of, of the rules or. Or, or it just he he likes to play things play play around.
3: Yeah, I think it's 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 a preference. I um, I find it so hard to define genius because I think any of those writers from that time that have survived, you know, particularly the ones that we know well, with Shakespeare obviously above and beyond, but but characters like Marlowe and Middleton who who have something visceral in their place that keeps us coming back and keeps them coming back i think they can all be defined as geniuses of their time i think the golden age of theater was well blessed with good writers but i think it is maybe something inspired in shakespeare that that spoke to something dirtier in 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 human psychology the way that we break down I think he just, he may have had more experience in that, but that he had like personally, we don't know that much, but we know that he struggled a lot that yeah, most playwrights do, but he in particular didn't have you know, patrons and didn't have a rich family and and would have had to be penniless for a while and was kind of forced into his marriage with an older woman and all these things. I think he knew what it meant to break down and that, that his, his, he, 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 it was just a reflection of knowing that confusion of the mind, that, that the basic processes of A to B to C no longer line up. The synapses begin to get muddled and confused. And I think he expressed that through the rhythm, through the meter, through the words uh, that he chose to use. Um, yeah, I think he's just expressing something that he knew of through his craft, through his form. I think it's something that's spoken to us for a long time.
1: Um, so in your um, associate profile on the Lazarus website, you say that the best thing about theatre is that it is completely sh- a completely shared experience between audience and actors, giving us the opportunity to laugh, love, live and learn together as a joined community. So that was written probably six months ago, maybe a little bit longer. Um, do you still agree with that? Do you, Have you changed your mind? Has, has theatre changed for you um, with the changes that have happened?
3: Well, I still very much agree with that. And I believe um, that it can apply to all art to a certain degree, you know, the, the fact that, you know, the water cooler conversations, as they're stereotypically known as, where everyone suddenly goes off on one about Friends or, uh, what are some of the newer ones? Uh, Tiger King, <laughs> everyone can enjoy we like having those online conversations now on the uh, digital water cooler. Like everyone loves to engage and have those opinions and have those arguments. I think it exists more in theatre because you feel it, you all feel it together, uh, that every production of theatre that you see is unique to that time and never going to be seen again, unless it happens to be, you know, a national theater live. Uh, no one else is ever going to see that particular performance. No one else is going to see those particular nuances. If the actors are doing it the way actors do it, then they're finding those moments for the first time that night, every night, and it's completely unique, and it it's such a uh, a little gift that they share with everyone that everyone in the audience can experience it together. I mean, the reason we engage so much with art with drama is because it allows us to put us in that put ourselves in that position, feel those emotions, experience that catharsis, and then come out the other side safe, knowing that now this is not my actual life that's been ruined, and it's a shame now that people get so invested in uh, you know the eight to ten hours of Netflix a day. That they will get furious actually get online and be furious psychopathically angry because something happened to a character that they didn't like or something you know went wrong like all the fury that happened at the end of Game of Thrones because people had invested more in that show than they do in their own lives uh I don't think that happens in theater because it's it's very hard to have that kind of consistency to, to be able to see it all day every day because it's quite expensive and it all has limited runs and so it's it, I think it's a purer version of that catharsis, an older version of that catharsis that that exists more more innocently, more more freely, because you can't get over invested, you can't become obsessed with it, you can't become angry about it uh, in the same way that you can can all this this oversaturation of digital media. So I think it is a very pure version of it.
1: Well, I've definitely seen some people pretty angry leaving leaving productions before, but uh, I mean, that's because maybe because they 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 think they know what this play is or 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 what this what it's Was about. Was it Hamilton? How... Were they leaving Hamilton? <laughs> <laughs> um, I I have seen people leave Hamilton actually, but no, generally generally Shakespeare. Shakespeare play where, where they, you know, they, it's their favourite play, and it's been done differently, or it's been, you know, a role has been regendered or, or something, and they just they just can't handle it. So and maybe that is the investment thing. Again, you, you've spent so much t- of your life invested in your perception of one play or, or, or one character. Um, and if that is challenged or changed, then yeah you get up and leave
3: apparently yeah that, that is interesting that it exists with yeah because obviously shakespeare is a, a lot of a lot of people's lives they they will become dedicated. i do i love it mm. but in in i think double coupled with working in theater and being part of theatre and knowing that it's all a fluid thing and that shakespeare one of the most wonderful things about shakespeare is that it's able to evolve with theater the way it's changed i mean even you know, comparing it to 30, 40 years ago, the way Ken Branagh did it then, absolutely amazing, but not necessarily how we would do it now. Same for, you know, 50 years ago when old Laurence Olivier did it, absolutely phenomenal. But we've changed, we've learned, we've grown, we've built on those wonderfully strong foundations to find something new and relevant for what we're doing. Um, so yeah, that is an outrage that that I am aware of. I've always found surprising. But yeah, it, it's interesting that that does feed in that, that that's the sort of thing that people get over invested in.
1: Yes, That I, and, Hamilton.
3: <laughs> and Hamilton. Yeah.
1: Um, speaking of Shakespeare, uh, as we have been a lot thus far. Yeah. Um, let's let's Couldn't start see taking. That coming. <laughs> let's start taking a trip down memory lane. Um, you first worked with Lazarus uh, on Henry V at the Union Theatre. Can you, can you tell us um what you remember of of that that process in that time?
3: Oh, so much. Which one, the first process or the second process? Well, tell,
1: tell us about that. What happened there?
3: So the first time um, I was cast as Gower and the, we were in a wonderful little rehearsal space in, where was it? Loughborough Junction. Yeah. Loughborough Junction, yeah. And it was sort of an under the arches thing, big white room, with big arches. And it was just, it was playing away. It was all these uh, lovely ladies Discovering this this play, um, there was a very different draft than we we ended up with in the end. The Cath uh, Princess Catherine was there, um, and yeah, it was my first Lazarus experience. So it was really fun. It was like, you know, going back to drama school, playing all these wonderful games and 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 exploring the characters. And we spent days. Days, days trying to figure out Salic Law. <laughs> it's like, oh my goodness, that speech! And, I, and by the end, it was like, you know what? I don't think it's supposed to make sense. <laughs> I don't think we're supposed to know without reading very many, many old German history books. <laughs> and no, uh, but it was wonderful. Oh, clear as is the summer sun. It's still something I say very often when I'm being, you know, completely opaque. Um, but that was really fun. It was it was uh, so refreshing for me because I had just come out of Edinburgh and my friend Lewis that I worked with in Edinburgh said, you know, I've worked with this company called Lazarus. I think you'll love them. They're doing an all-female Henry V. So the process of getting that audition, going to the audition, getting into it was was so fun in itself like oh my god this has worked is this going to be everything i dreamed of yeah it was great it was just back in drama school playing games talking about endlessly endlessly talking about the text and the characters and the history and building it all up this is so good but then we got sort of two and a half weeks in of our three week rehearsals and that's all we'd done we hadn't really blocked anything or done anything (laughs) to create Mm. the play and then our beloved director got in an accident. Wow. and uh yeah there was it was what was it a lady opening our door while uh ricky rode past on a bike. Car, car door not just yeah. a
0: front door. <laughs> front door <laughs> that would be that car would be door. one hell of a door wouldn't it uh yes indeed yeah and of course we it was such a, such a crucial time when um actually i think it was uh jamie was saying the other day uh it, it in one of the podcast recording you know so much of the staging is based on the stuff that you've played with for the previous two weeks it's a bit scary because you get to the third week of rehearsal and you go we actually haven't really yeah. made any decisions but actually you have it's all there it's just
3: now where it all fits a bit
0: like Tetris you know
3: yeah but, we just um... started running it I think and and yeah. figuring out where we were going to throw the tables and when <laughs> Those crucial <laughs> moments but yes Those um, huge white tables that we just kept every scene It was like this one's up here now and yeah. then perfectly set up for the next scene i've forgotten about all that, that?
0: yeah i've forgotten yeah. about all that um but of course yeah then it, it's um the pivotal moment isn't it it's that that, you know, that that's where the work's i suppose really done or it sort of falls into place or it doesn't and you have to sort of ram it into place but mm. uh yeah i mean sort of the worst time to open your car door
3: <laughs> yeah. We were all very worried about you. We took, we took a picture for you and then it was just sort of, it was a very deflating ending. And we all just went home. It was like, oh, all this playing and all this discovery and all this fun. Didn't
2: and you go and, to the pub?
3: Nothing to do with it. Oh, we went to the pub, yeah. We I was going to gonna say, blimey, I'd <laughs> oh, be very annoyed if pub.
0: you didn't go to the pub.
3: <laughs> yeah, but we were, it was sombre, it was sombre pubbing in the middle of the day. Because it was still it was the begin- first beginning of the rehearsal day it was like ten o'clock it was like the we'll we'll leave when the pub's open and
2: that's when we left the <laughs> rehearsal room
3: um, but yeah and and so there was there was sort of a uh, loaded gun that had never gone off sort of thing feeling to it and so when uh, what was it eight months later something like that you did revengers in between and then uh, you brought Henry back and I was like yes I'm I'm so up for this I'm so in for this. And I was so happy that that we were coming back to it. And I even, I got, not promotion, but I got a new character. I went from Gower to Flewellyn because Flewellyn had had a baby, Lesser. Because I remember that that as well in the first rehearsal room, Misha being pregnant and doing all the, you know, running around physical stuff in this tiny space going, wait, where's Misha? Where's Misha? Where's Misha? Don't go near Misha." Um. yeah, so then I ended up as Flewellyn, which was a bit weird for me because you know i'd love the from what i'd seen misha do it was amazing and i thought she was going to be brilliant i loved that she she had flowed the Welsh so easy and she had such clarity of speech and i you know the way she spoke the character was was clearer than i'd ever heard it clearer than ian holm which is quite the compliment um and so i felt uh, you know already a lot of pressure on that because she's like going into a role that i know someone else can play better also coming out of drama center all those uh, years studying Shakespeare I'd been told very specifically you are an epic actress you do the grand things very well um I've never been told that I could do comedy I'd never been aware that I could be funny um but yeah no turns out it went quite well I mean I didn't like one of the things I knew was never play for a joke never play to be funny never but just for that character itself there is so much lightness there, there is so much awkwardness, there is so much speaking at the wrong time and saying the wrong thing and not getting like the, the gravitas of the situation in order to just drop something in there and so just it's a very naturally humorous kind of character so just playing the character as written again using the process of exploring, I couldn't do my rhythm because he speaks in prose but just, find, just finding um, who the character was purely made it funny because he's a funny guy, he's well written.
1: And uh, d- did you did you do a Welsh accent for it as well?
3: I did, I did. I remember having to fight for that Welsh accent because <laughs> you couldn't remember if Misha did one or not. I was like well Misha did it so I, sh- I should be allowed to do it. <laughs> well. And there was the thing because I had that opening monologue as well which is just yeah just to have that opening monologue, that particular opening monologue is a really good one to have. And uh, I think we we had a discussion about whether it should be Welsh or English. We settled on English. Uh, but it was fun speaking that in Welsh because I was beginning to really enjoy that. I had to work so hard on that accent. I could not do a Welsh accent. I could not do it now. But then that moment in history, I could do Welsh kind of okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So then we move on to 2016, which was a busy year for you, um, a busy Lazarus year for you. Anyway, um, you were in the Back uh at the Blue Elephant Theatre. You were in *Tis Pity She's a Whore* at the Tristan Bates Theatre, and you did the rehearsed reading of, of John Gay's *Polly* the sequel. Um, what? So the Back was a devised production that uh, we worked on together um, at the Blue Elephant Theatre. Can you can you tell us what you remember of that time?
3: Um. I remember it was the first time that I got to do a Lazarus production with my husband. Oh yes, who is now my husband? Then he was my boyfriend. Uh, uh, he had just done Tamburlaine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just Tamburlaine, yes. and uh, yeah, that that was really fun because I I think that like not to say I like I've worked with. Sh- really wonderful standout people with Lazarus but I think that was my favorite company Mm -hmm. because it was really everyone just threw themselves in with both feet and just going nuts because it's such a a weird twisted sexually charged play Mm -hmm. that you just have to throw everything out on the first day and you have to be willing to writhe and Runt and turn into beasts and all this stuff, which can you know be awkward at times, even among the most uh, experienced of actors. And just yeah, everyone going for it, and it it created this wonderful camaraderie of of just weird people together being weird. And uh, it, it was wonderful the de- devising our own speeches as well. Everyone uh, talking about their own experiences and talking very personally about themselves and putting it into the characters that was really, really fun. I found that was, that was a really fun experience that I had never, that I haven't had before or since, where people take so much of themselves and put it into the play. Um, And then, yeah, it it was just kind of a wild production in the end. I remember that. I just remember it being very, very fun. I had some physical struggles going on, I remember, but uh, it was it was worth overcoming because it sort of just added to the energy and the passion and the aggression and the girl the the thing the 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 overall uh, energy of the production and it was really fun. It was I remember it being really fun and really really far away from home. I remember the commute being about two hours there and two hours back. That was that was that was fun.
1: You got to do that with Steve, <laughs> there, right?
3: I got to do that with Steve, so it was fine. I had Steve there, and yeah, I, we would have endless endless conversations on the way home. Uh, about what we've been through that day and that was really really fun as well like having that someone to just completely analyze and break everything down with for the next you know travel home and then the evening and then each morning we just sat silently looking at our phones going over our scripts as you do because we're still waking up but yeah that was that was really really lovely experience because I've done production for Steve quite a lot of them actually we met doing a production together but that was that was that was being in drama class together and discovering each other and discovering uh, so much together. That was really fun.
1: I remember the. It wasn't until the first Friday night drinks that some of the cast actually realised you you were both together. Um, <laughs> y- you were you were so professional in the room and and so yeah. en- engrossed in the work that that they just they had no idea that you were weren't weren't yet married, but um, were yeah. were a couple. Yeah, so that that company was. I think one of the one of the most um, kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for um, courageous uh, groups of people I've worked mm. with, I think um, they did. Like you say, they did just throw themselves into it. It was, re- it, you know, for, it was really exposing um because maybe in a minute you can tell us what what devise theatre means or what it means to be to to devise a piece of theatre but but they were they were writing some really and bringing to the room some really personal things that then were going to be put on stage for an audience so yeah they they were they were a really courageous um brave brave group group of people and but what so tell us what what does it mean to tell the listeners what 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 it means to 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 devise a piece of theatre
3: um Uh, Well, several several meanings, as far as my understanding is, sometimes it's going in with completely blank slate and deciding what story you want to tell, um, beginning, middle and end, and uh, or or it's having a basic framework, like something like a chorus line, very famous musical is a devised piece of theatre, where they said, okay, we just want to have a play about actors at an audition talking about themselves. So all the original actors in the production talked about themselves. They talked about their histories and they, it, it all be, and then it was some of it was turned into songs, some of it was turned into long speeches, some was t- turned into extended dance routines. and that was the play, and that was it. and uh, and and uh, it's now very, very famous and very well done and oft repeated. You know, um, and that was from literally nothing. everything almost everything in that play was contributed by the performers in it. And then something like what we did is having a basis of uh, the back eye, and then finding places within it. I think it's, it was a wonderful choice as well, because as far as ensemble goes with Greek theatre, that's where your ensemble goes, where it has to be there, sort of pulsing under everything that happens throughout the play. And so, for for you know, you've got your two-handers because it's a Greek play. It's all two-handers, two people on stage talking to each other, and then everyone else around just finding things. Whether it's physically inserting yourself into the scene as, as you know, onlookers, as furniture, as architecture, as whatever you are, or or, or verbally, I think there was a lot of panting, a lot of groaning, a lot of finding how, what is it we want to put beneath this particular scene and that was that was i think a fascinating part of the process finding out how is it that we can make our presence known uh, but with while complementing what was happening in the scene and helping build the tension or relieve the tension and that sort of thing so it really is a is a bunch of actors playing together with a singular uh, goal but then taking every side route and alleyway that you can possibly find to get there and then hopefully ending up with something affecting and and often very visceral for an audience to to experience.
1: Mm. Um, Then you, later that year, you moved on uh, to Tis Petty, She's a Whore. Um, Mm. That was at the Tristan Bates Theatre. Tell us about that experience. Uh,
3: Yeah, very different. Going from Bacchae back to early modern, where it's all about the text. It's all about getting into it. It It was very, had to switch hats after the sort of joy and freedom of running around in 90 and covering everything with blood poor sonia covered in blood (laughs) (laughs) oh that's great but then uh back to rigidly this is the text these are the words and it is it's my wheelhouse it's what i love to do so it was wonderful going back to that and uh but at the same time it was kind of wanting to jump up and run around and do things while in that room it was we had a lot of uh a lot of picking apart to do, a lot of discovering to do, a lot of analysing to do, and uh, I, I imagine it was very similar to the Henry V room, but but there was just, so, I I felt there was a, an energy and a boost lacking having been, you know, running around and screaming for all of Bacchae, and so when we got to actually like putting together the movement and the Fighting and all that stuff, that was really fun. Like dancing around that banquet table and then uh, getting thrown onto the table with choke hold and getting all that physical stuff in. And it was actually around that time I was like, Yeah, I'm really enjoying the physical. Yeah, I sort of fell into the stage combat, but then I was like, No, I think that it is such a vital part to this stuff. Just standing and talking is not enough. Just academically exploring the text is not enough. You've got to have an oomph somewhere. And uh, yeah. I thought it was really fun because we did uh, the the grand massacre at the end of that was 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 very fun because it was all big dance routine <laughs> with banners and things.
1: That was a dance routine or stage combat. Um, how, how how did that how did you how did you rehearse that how did that how did that come into being?
3: Chaotically, very <laughs> chaotically. Uh, so was a, we didn't. Uh, we had done a lot of uh, movement experimentation a lot of uh, finding out different ways to move across a space move around a space and then uh we had a, a fight oh no with i want to say john the fight guy uh, john yeah john yeah him he came in to, to to teach to to do some stage combat and uh, set some stuff for us for the big fight at the end and then uh yeah, basically, one afternoon, Ricky just sort of put everything together as, as, okay, these are how, these are the movements we're going to do, this is the routine, how it's going to go round, this is when the violence is going to break out, this is when the, you know, everyone's going to run, everyone's going to come back in, everyone's going to do the dance, and it just became a structured routine that within, then we could uh, sort of breathe in and out of, of, okay, these are the moments that you find whatever your character would be doing, and this is the moment that we all come back together as company. I remember there was a Pope mask, I'm not sure where the Pope mask came from, but it was there on Prince's head at some point in the play. The Pope was shuffling by. not surprising. quite didn't. surreal actually for, for something that's set as a, 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 you know, very textural piece. It became quite chaotic and mad in the end.
1: Yeah. And then there was a, a heart, bloody heart at the end.
3: Oh yeah. There was an act. There was a heart, it's gotta yeah. be a heart.
1: Yeah. I remember oh, boy, boy. remember having having a freezer full of, of hearts at the at the Tristan Bates Theatre in the bar. Yeah. All re- I remember all ready having to, go.
3: to be the person placing it, like picking it up, placing it on the stage and coming back down, going, Don't leak, don't leak, you're gross. <laughs> I hit you. There we go.
1: Well at that stage it was still frozen. It thawed out over the the <laughs> the, the length of the, the show, didn't it? By the and by oh, the end was, it was dripping.
3: There was definitely one night when it dropped, when it was just sort of a Yes, steaks. yes,
1: it it didn't oh. stay on the knife. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> but
1: that's live theatre, isn't it? That's live theatre. <laughs> no.
3: Yeah, isn't yeah.
0: It, isn't it funny how you sort of block certain things out? Mm. Like I sort of don't really remember a great deal, actually. And um, yeah, it's interesting how how memory, the water of the brain, um, <laughs> can sometimes be like a fume uh, yeah, with funny, with huh? Lady M's alcohol or not.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: you know, but um, yeah, I think the whole, if I remember rightly, the whole idea was sort of just replacing a whole act with a movement piece. Mm. So actually, combining all the deaths together, and I certainly remember that was part of that bit. But um, yeah, there are
3: other characters that should have died earlier, others that should have died later. I think yeah. The as written the banquet only has about five victims but we just kill everyone
0: yeah i just put it in that sort of um i think we used to call it the carousel of death or something but some some idea of the kind of you know just overlapping all the murders. so there's something quite cathartic about this bunch of buggers you know they all they all get it at the end um which is kind of interesting but that's 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 been really interesting through this spotlight process of just talking to people about ensemble because um you know, when you get that, when you get, I, I think I used a cooking metaphor with in Jamie's podcast, but essentially, you know, it's if all the ingredients are in the right mixing bowl, it can be actually a bit of a blessing and off we go. But if it's not all quite there and we don't all come to simmer at the same time and, you know, that's quite, that's quite difficult, it becomes quite problematic and I think... It's tricky because you sort of want to find it through the process, but actually sometimes it does, just doesn't come and you have to just, you know, I'm always reluctant to be prescriptive, but that's maybe something I've learned as a director of the years. You sort of have to be, you sort of do mm. have to tell people what we're going to do, which I'm always reluctant to do. But actually, normally when actors respond quite well to that, then we find things probably a little bit more effectively, potentially. The other thing is, is that big realisation is workshopping. You know, I kind of think now the idea of doing a whole production, albeit abridged, in three weeks is just bonkers. It's just, just sort of crazy. But oh, the naivety of being young! (laughs) I wouldn't do it now. (laughs) It's
1: only been a year.
0: <laughs> we're, we're only no, no, I'm old. talking it from 2016. Oh, yeah. There's no yeah. way you take this pity in the in a rehearsal room for three weeks, having no idea, really. I mean, I mean, sure, there were some ideas, but not having that thing choreographed before. I mean, you, it would just be bonkers. And and I think maybe the whole last year has been part of that reflection. But you, you know, I would never put a director in that position. Um, you know, give him a week or a couple of days of working out. What this idea of that carousel of death thing was, anyway? But yeah, um, yeah pretty mental in the Tristan Bates in the summer.
2: Mm.
3: Yeah, it did. <laughs> that whole process did feel kind of cut short. That was probably the one that felt the shortest. They're all the same length, but that one felt like the the we got the least done. We we felt the least completed. And then but I think it's also harder, during- isn't it? I think there's I think it's
0: actually more difficult you know the thing the thing with something like a Shakespeare is there's loads of books to read on it it is pity at the time there was hardly any I mean there are now but they weren't at the time so so you know just being part of the conscious I think a Shakespeare is way easier than a non-Shakespeare early modern certainly my experience it's just less accessible in terms of other you know finding roots in less documentaries to watch about less material to read about it so you're you really are taking a, a complete obscure it's it's you know certainly to a bunch of young actors who haven't come across this type of thing before at least with something like roman juliet and as much dream you could watch a dvd of it and go i could just do that um you know so so maybe that's it maybe that's the the sort of the um observation you've just got to do longer work on it you can't do that sort of thing in three weeks you know Or maybe you can, maybe some listeners are out there going, yes, you can. You're just old and past it. And to which I would agree. (laughs) To which I would
3: agree. (laughs) I think just that one extra day of workshop, that one day of gathering everyone together, getting everyone in the right mindset, getting everyone working on the script in the same way. Because that's the thing with that one in particular from the day, first day it was, you know, retraining people to look at the script. So we're all looking at the script the same way. I remember we had to spend a lot of time on that. Some people just weren't connecting with it or weren't understanding it or weren't bothering with it. And so just having that workshop, that preliminary where you can just say to everyone, this is how I want you to look at the script. This is what I want you to bring to the room on the first day. It's not about memorizing it and knowing all your lines off book straight away. Although that's always helpful. But but knowing the perspective that we're going to start at. And without having to explain that at the beginning of, of the rehearsal time, I think has been beneficial in uh, other productions that I've done later.
0: Yeah. It's always been a tricky balancing act of, for me, I think, in that um, I always thought a director couldn't tell an actor how to say something or how to use the text. And it, and it, and actually it, it did get to a point um, where you sort of just have to, like, this is the way we're going to tell the story. And, um, and it sounds awful in a way. I mean, I, you know, there's so much reflection going on. I'm, it's like a, you know, a mirrored wall at the moment, a mirrored room, but uh, <laughs> my, one of my housemate is uh, studying directing um, an MA in directing. It's so interesting talking to him about it, but you sort of learn that I, you do kind of have to demonstrate. This is the way that we're going to be telling the story. And, some people are not going to like that but actually i'm wondering whether you can bring that in even earlier so that's part of the audition process this is how we're using text so if someone doesn't want to do that then they don't have to come on board and do that but it's but i I never i always hate being prescriptive i absolutely hate it but actually when you sort of look back on the more successful inverted commas productions it's been when i've been the most prescriptive actually um and clear, so maybe there's something in that, I don't know. We might be going on a tangent here, sorry. <laughs> no, it's great, it's great. Um,
1: and then, so then uh, we ended 2016 with uh, the rehearsed reading of John Gay's Polly. Um, can you briefly tell us uh, what that what that process was like, how, how that went?
3: it yeah, was, was like just a fun couple of days in the Broccoli Jack. And then we just, uh, we went, we all met in the theatre and we read through it and then we stood on our feet and we read through it and we're like what props can we use what do we understand of this who's doing what what can we add because it was all going to be script in hand it was all sort of just a rough on your feet reading of it uh and and like i said we had two days we were doing that day and then the next day we were going to have the morning and then do it in the afternoon um so it wasn't an extraordinary amount of time i remember being surprised by um, how much we got done? How how much of a, a production we actually formed? They like, we had the, the the set and the blocking and the particular girls that were in there um, just all found places to go and places to be and 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 ways to make it interesting to, and to keep setting a scene. It, it never had just people standing and reading, like everything had layers, everything had depths, and all in a couple of days, it was like wow, this is this is really good for <laughs> just. Two days, I think, if we got the scripts down, this would not be a bad production. Mm-hmm. I was very impressed with how much we achieved just by, again, it was about everyone arriving in the right mindset. I think everyone in that room had worked with Lazarus before. No, not no, everyone. No,
1: um, there, there was. I know I'd was, worked with quite a few of them before. Yeah, there were some people who. I mean, there was an audition process um, for that uh, because. Um, yeah, Sara directed that. And uh yeah. we wanted to kind of bring in more people because we were doing a production of, of John Gay's Beggar's Opera at the time. And this was on the weekend when well, Sunday, Monday when the when the show wasn't wasn't on, and, and we wanted to bring in in more people and, and engage more people in, in the project. Um so yeah, there were people that h- hadn't worked with Lazarus before in that. And there was a
3: uh, alum like like Misha and Paula just being awesome Mm. and yeah i think just everyone arrived with the headspace of what we've got two days we just work really really hard and really really fast and if you've got to make a decision just make it It doesn't matter Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's got to be done you don't have time to think about it you don't have time to analyze just do something Mm.
2: and uh,
3: yeah quite a lot got done
2: yeah
1: good good um and then we had a few years uh well you had a few years off from lazarus you uh took a break after doing three three productions (laughs) in one year uh (laughs) and then came back in 2020 uh, as lady macbeth and macbeth um mm-hmm. tell us about the pro- that process
3: um it was i was in a very different place because in that little interim i got married and had children mm. so you know quite a lot happened um and so i had a, an entirely new headspace an entirely new figure um and it was my first sort of back to back to creativity. I'd been back at the Globe for a bit to do some fighting but I hadn't really done that much and so uh, coming back to it it's a completely different life perspective. Obviously I was aware of the character of Lady Macbeth and I'd seen quite a few in my time and and I I thought about her in the past being you know defined as an epic actress from a young age but then coming to it, trying to come to it, I, consciously trying to come to it new, come to it fresh, come to it from the perspective of who I am now, which is someone different, trying to wipe away all those uh, previous assumptions and analyses and all that. I, I found an even more fascinating character than I thought. And I became so engrossed in, in the idea of her as a mother, that she is a, she is a, an incredibly ambitious mother with no children. So it all goes into her husband and she has an obsession with him. She has an obsession with his success. I think there was when we were staging the coronation and I ended up at the back of the line, I had someone ask me, "Why, why are you at the back of the line for the coronation? I mean, wouldn't she want to be at the front with him? Wouldn't she want to be getting her glory? It's like she is getting her glory. Her glory is his glory. So him being up there being showered with gold with a crown on his head is all she wants. Her standing in the background smirking to herself is exactly what she would want. She doesn't want the attention on her. She wants it on him. She's the proud parent in that situation, not the partner getting all the glory. It is not about her being queen. I don't think she even mentions herself as queen. She only ever talks about him being king and him having Mm -hmm. the power and that's what she wants so it fit perfectly for me that that's where she would be in that moment not sharing the glory but reveling in him getting all of it and uh, I found that fascinating because so many versions I've seen that she like she's often analyzed as the power hungry one who wants all the power and she you know the 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 stereotype of a Lady M is someone who's just trying to vie for power and run the show for everyone. It's like, she's not that, she doesn't want any power for her. She just wants it for him in an act of completely unquestioning, all engrossing love, which is, you know, good. She's a good person, really. <laughs> yeah, she just loves too much.
0: You know, going back to the mixing bowl thing, actually we talked about earlier with Tis Pity, there's something about the ingredients in the Mabeth room that um is something very difficult to emulate, but is is almost become the new benchmark or the test case of that's what you need in a company, uh, in terms of personalities and skills and energies and things. But um really fascinating you talk about the coronation stuff because um initially, or originally anyway, going into rehearsal, the idea was that they would both be crowned together. And it was so interesting that that's that's just something that um you know, sometimes the director, you go into a rehearsal room and the ideas that come up that the company create consciously or subconsciously are better. And that's the dream. So actually, you know, in my head, I'd stage it with the both of them get crowned at the same time each time, you know, and actually um, you just go, well, actually the company's found something far better than this. And isn't it interesting again by, I mean, it could be complicity, it could be look, it could just be sort of how the, the cards fall, but something like a line, um in the coronation we can then start building stories out without having to build a story about it so Mm. you know we don't have to have a conversation about backstories and hot desk seating and all that sort of stuff you just you go well this is how this is how the company works and off we go and and we can build on that but um I just thought it was interesting as we talked about the mixing bowl earlier some of it was a bit out of date um some of the ingredients might not have been quite right and actually there was a version of something where you go actually all this sort of slots quite neatly together you know
3: I think it's something we had in that room. There's basically two perspectives you can take of this is who my character is and I've decided who my character is. Uh, I couldn't stand over here right now because that's not what my character would do. So I need to do something (laughs) different or I'm stood over here. That's a fact. Why is my character stood over here? I will find the reason my character is here and that will be part of my character rather so it's those two and i think the second perspective is what we had in the macbeth room everyone going okay well if this is where i need to be right now because you know something just exploded over there or i need to go get my gas mask or i need to set up a chair then i need to figure out why my character's here beyond because i had to go get a chair and and i think everyone was very on board with finding that and finding the reasons for that and i think it gave it like you say, gave gave a depth to the storytelling, but also sort of fleshed out everything that was happening. No one was just stood there because they were told to stand there. They, they had a reason for it.
0: I think there's a difference between uh, the actors who talk and the actors who listen. And mm. your first example there is an, a, a bunch of creatives talking. And then your second version of that is a bunch of creatives listening. Yeah. And that's the big uh, realization, I think, is uh, you want a, a bunch of creatives, uh, the actors, the creative team, you know, who all listen mm. to each other, effectively. Um, I think
3: it's also it's a wonderful thing that comes out of theatre, sort of going back to the earlier tangent that... Like giving giving an actor a read for how you say a line that's 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 over the line that's too far. But the idea of of a piece of theatre being a bunch of artists, individual artists with their own artistic visions, whether they're actors or creatives, designers, uh, the director, even the you know the producer, the writer, all of them are artists in their own right. But all coming together to meld their artistic visions into one has to have a singular goal, has to have a singular voice at the head and that's the director's job, so if the director says this is how it's being said and this is how it's being done, you have to follow that, you have to put your artistic vision into those margins, into that line. I think that for me, one of the most terrifying things about devised pieces is not having any of those margins, not having any of those lines to follow, because I quite like being within that box. This is how far your creativity goes. It's it's much easier to have, you know, here's the first line of a story, continue it on. Then here is a blank piece of paper, write a story. And so, so existing within those lines, I think is something that you have to do as a company, as a whole. And as soon as anyone's like, no, 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 I want to go over there, and everyone's just has to make room for me, that's when you begin to get a bit corrupted. But yeah, having that singular voice at the head of it, singular head, I think is absolutely vital. And so, yeah, everyone, anyone who says, well, as an artiste, as an actor, as, as you know, my character, that's not how it would work. Sounds, it's very juvenile to me. I think I used to be like that, I think. I used to be like that <laughs> until it got beaten out of me. I think you might've been the one to beat it out of me.
0: <laughs> not literally everyone listening, blindly. <laughs> Um, no, or, just, the
3: four hours walking around the room I was like I don't <laughs> want
0: to <be> anymore. <laughs> but all the other thing is you don't have to do that that's the other thing I think is really interesting to learn is you don't have to do it just don't be part of it then you know mm-hmm. and it's it's totally that's totally totally fine and and I think um people don't believe me when I say it but in auditions saying because we of you as you well know on both sides of the table because you've supported us in auditions we do workshops and the audition is just as much about us exploring and, and informing and being being informed by the people who've come to audition as it is the other way around. You know, if, if you didn't enjoy this workshop audition, you will really hate the rehearsal process. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, if you got something out of the way that we're working in this audition process, then you will potentially love the way that we work and, you know, and it isn't for everybody. And actually that's kind of liberating realising it isn't. Uh, it isn't for everybody I think that's where the workshops come useful as well you workshop something and if an actor after a week work, week, week workshop says actually I really don't think this is for me that, that's I would much rather they depart at that point and go yeah totally that's that's totally fine you know we, we all work in very different ways and and uh, it's respecting that um, please do not stay you know for your own, for yourself, for your own well-being, please don't be part of this. If this is, it's not to say it's not going to be difficult for everybody. Of course, there's going to be challenges. Of course, it's going to be difficult. Of course, it is. But um, you know, it, 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 our production of, um, oh, I'm trying to think of a play off the top of my head. Um, our production of cats is very different to <laughs> someone else's productions of cats. Our I style, love like, your production our production. <laughs> Our production of cats will be set in a big litter tray, um, very Brechtian. But you know, he you know what I mean. He's got to be real. <laughs> but you see what I mean. There's, a, there's a, there's a, you know, it, it's there's a different house style, isn't there? There's a different mm. process, and and that's important to respect everybody's part of that. And for some people, that's not what they want to do. And other people, that's totally what they want to do, and they get more out of it. And that's it's identifying that, I guess, is probably the the thing to do.
2: Mm.
1: So Alice, um, what does the future hold? What, what, what's going, what's, what's happening in the future for you creatively?
3: That's a big question (laughs) (laughs) and dependent on a lot of factors that I have very little control over.
1: Well, do you Um, have any projects, any projects on the horizon?
3: Uh, well, hopefully Peter Pan. Yes. That'd be fun. Um, beyond that no so <laughs> no okay projects
1: tell, tell us a little about Peter Pan Peter Pan was supposed to happen in the summer of 2020 but was postponed mm. uh, you weren't in Peter Pan you were you were joining the creative team is that right
3: yes I was going to be the fight choreographer right director, um, whatever you want to call it choreographer <laughs>
1: So every time I leave you and Ricky alone you're talking about pizza pan you're talking yeah. about pirates you're talking about yeah. stage combat you're talking about how people fight um can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that maybe Ricky can come in on this as well
3: yeah um the the well, I don't. I don't know what the production's going to be yet. I don't know what the script <laughs> is going to be. I no don't know yet, what, <laughs> what the theme is going to be. But um, something that I find fascinating about it is something that I've uh, done a lot of research and exploration into, with my work at the Globe, is how the language of fighting has changed. That 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 once upon a time in Shakespeare's day, someone would walk on stage with a sword on their hip, and everyone would know quite a lot about that character. Uh, you know, nowadays there are other tropes and things we recognize. If we see someone step out of a Porsche in a gray, light gray three-piece suit with Bluetooth in their ear and a Starbucks in their hand and, you know, aviators on, it's like, I know something about you. I know who you are. I know, I know some things about you that I can assume from what you're wearing and how you're talking and what you're thinking and what you're driving. Uh, back in Shakespeare's day, when Tybalt walks out on stage with a rapier on his hip, same response. Ooh, I know a lot about you. I know that you're rich. I know that you like fighting. I know that you probably spend 10 to 12 hours a day training with that ridiculous sword of yours, because that's what rapier men do. And uh, that sort of thing, like the way he'd hold himself, the way he'd move, the way he'd walk. Uh, I've always found that stuff fascinating. So within Peter Pan, my first sort of perspective on it now is that it's two tribes at war in in permanent combat with each other. And so you've got the Lost Boys running through doing this sort of uh, militia guerrilla warfare in the jungle with lots of traps and hiding and running. And then pirates with their brute uh, strength and their power and swords and training and just massive, massive people twice the size of all the Lost Boys because they're adults and the others are children. So you've got two very different, different techniques, but still very, very well-defined forms of martial combat. And I think that that needs to be shown it is it's it's you know it's child fantasy but part of that is you know a lot of kids run around the playground shooting bows and arrows at each other and and running through the forest doing commando stuff and so the, that fantasy of, yeah, what does it mean to be in permanent, locked in permanent martial combat? You can't just walk through the forest as a lost boy. You've got to permanently check the traps and dodge between trees. You're going to be permanently sort of hunched and da 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 skittering around. And as a pirate, you've got this confidence, but at the same time, you're on a ship most of the time. So, you know, again, back in the day, everyone could identify a sailor by the way he walked on land. Like, yep, yeah, he's got his sea legs, he is a sailor. Mm-hmm. And so I I became fascinated by exploring that physicality, exploring those different ways of fighting and communicating it to the audience in a way that they would understand, in a way it could be comprehended nowadays, despite the fact that we don't see a lot of pirates and guerrilla children running around the place. But but, uh, possibly exploring what the language was then, how they would have been then, and then exploring what it means nowadays. What would we see in the town center that made us go, that's a kid that does a lot of fighting. Or that's a guy that would would mess you up. You know, that's someone to avoid. That's someone trying to hide. That's someone on the run. Like, what are the identifiers that we would find now? So that's that's something I would I would love to explore. And seemed, you know, Peter Pan would be the perfect place to do that. Though I might be getting a bit deep for a kids' play.
1: <laughs> can never it can never be too deep uh, for a kids' play. It's just about how it's how it's then received, right? How 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 that is. Um, conveyed to the audience and, and how they receive it can they can they acknowledge and and can they recognize those those key things that you have instilled into those into the physicality of those characters
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah interesting okay
2: adding layers adding layers. Layers.
1: layers over layers yeah. yeah
0: yeah um ricky i think it's time for the 60 second challenge marvelous here Ew. we go this is where it all gets terribly uh competitive alice and we know that you like a bit of competition you won't be shy away from a bit of competition so <laughs> here, here comes the science bit this is my bit you know my uh, l'oreal moment uh, so right the rules are simple uh, i'm going to ask you some simple quick fire questions answer them as fast as you can to see how many you can answer in 60 seconds you can pass but this won't add to your final score and we'll add your score up uh, at the end we'll add that to our leaderboard to see who is the overall winner and currently at the time of recording um leading the leaderboard is the composer bobby Locke with a lovely grand lucky for him score of 13 uh we have yes yes indeed we have uh, gavin on the uh clock um here demonstrated with a, a glass bell if you like can we hear that gavin can, oh, it's like we a little... that? can we yes that was a question wasn't it can we hear it that was like tinkerbell in the distance wasn't it A little heart so we'll listen out for that after the 60 seconds so basically at the end of the 60 seconds you'll hear that little cutbell bell of dreams that little tinkerbell if you like uh, and time will be up okay alice art thou ready
3: i'm ready
0: <laughs> gavin art thou ready I don't know why I feel so devious in this section. I feel really naughty. I don't know why. I'm going to try and help. Okay, so 60 seconds on the clock. Start the clock. Horror or romance? Horror. Movies or theatre? Theatre. What did you want to be when you were a kid? Priest. What's your favourite word? Hence. (laughs) (laughs) Tea or coffee? Tea. Where's your happy place? Bed. Uh, Too hot or too cold? Too cold. Sweet or savoury? Sweet. What was your favourite subject in school? History. Uh, Who were you in a previous life? Grace
3: O'Malley. Cake or biscuit? Cake.
0: The first show you ever saw? Cats. Dogs or cats? Dogs. (laughs) Dogs. If you instantly became an expert in something, what would it be? Shakespeare. What was your first job? Uh, Thornton's Chocolate Shop. If you could change your name, what would it be? RJ. Beer or wine? Wine. Oh, that's the bell. That's the bell. Tinkerbell was shouting as loud as she could. (laughs) So loud! Okay. So, Alice, how many do you think you got? How many do you think you answered?
3: I don't know, 10 maybe?
0: Oh, well, I can tell you, you answered 15 questions. Oh my
3: God!
0: 15 questions. You heard it here literally first.
3: Not necessarily accurately, but cool!
0: There was an answer that's good enough for this incredibly skilled questionnaire. Uh, So uh, uh, Alice Emery is at the top of our wonderful 60 Seconds Challenge. Bobby Locke, you'll have to do better next time to take that ground back. Absolutely.
1: Knocked off his pedestal quite well and truly. There'll
0: be a slum of a piano somewhere as we speak. (laughs) This is what I'm known
3: for. Brevity.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But I, I loved uh, the fact that Cats was your first show, but you prefer dogs. So maybe yeah. Andrew Andrew needs to get back on his piano and create something
3: else. Yeah, where Can't is run, the Alice?
1: dogs musical? Hey,
3: where is that? Yeah, seriously.
0: Oh, <laughs> don't <laughs> encourage him, please.
1: <laughs> he's got Cinderella to worry about at the moment.
3: Yeah, he's doing is he Cinderella,
0: it's fine. He's the Jilly Lynn. <laughs>
1: yeah. Lovely. Well, huge thank you to Ellis for joining us today. It's been fantastic to talk to you. Um, thank you. Ellis, can you tell our listeners how they can find you on social media?
3: I'm on Twitter, at Reggie Sealy. That's kind of it. That's it, (laughs) great, yeah. I'm not big on the socials. (laughs) It's easier to find you
1: if there's one place.
3: Yeah, (laughs) find me on Twitter.
1: Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Alice. Thank you. And everyone else, thank you for tuning in. We will be back next week with another Spotlight On podcast. Until then, find out how you can get creative and get involved with our Year of Exploration by checking out our Facebook page, Twitter profile at Lazarus Theatre, and bits and bobs on our Instagram at Lazarus Theatre. All the details can be found on our website, www.lazarustheatre.com. I've been Gavin Harrington-Odedro.
0: And I've been Ricky Jukes.
1: Until next time, stay safe. Stay safe and stay well. Lazarus Theatre Company is a not-for-profit organisation that relies on the generous support of our friends, angels and principal supporters. If you wish to support this podcast or any of the work Lazarus Theatre Company is doing, you can visit the Lazarus Supporters page on our website, lazarustheatre.com forward slash lazarus hyphen supporters, or you can send any amount to paypal.me forward slash
0: every
2: Everybody
0: counts. You have been listening to The Spotlight On podcast hosted by Ricky Dukes and Gavin Harrington Odedra produced by Lazarus Theatre Company. The music you've been listening to is composed by Bobby Locke and is from our 2016-2017 production of The Caucasian Chalk
2: Circle by Bertolt Brecht.